Father, I thank you that you are the only God that really exists. I thank you that you have everything under control, that nothing escapes your attention. And I thank you that you have always had a plan. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us as your people to seek after you, to know that you are with us everywhere, all the time. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us, dying and raising from the dead. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you've given us your word, your truth. And I ask that you would fill us with that today. And Father, I ask that as the children go downstairs this morning, that they would be filled with the word, that they would be filled with the truth, that their lives would be impacted with what is truth. And I ask that you would be with the adults and helpers, give them wisdom. And I thank you as the body of Christ, we can come together and celebrate and honor you. And as I go through this this morning, I ask that there would be more of you than me in this message. In Christ's name, amen. Children, you may go downstairs. We're continuing in our study from Mark. And in today's passage from Mark, we find Jesus and his disciples on their way to Caesarea Philippi, approximately um, two and a half years or so into Jesus' ministry. And where we, we find things at this point in, in Christ's ministry, he's chosen the 12 disciples and he has huge crowds following him everywhere, everywhere. They come from all over. And as he continues to do miracles and teach people about God's love, those crowds increase. This is really astonishing because they're coming from for miles and miles just to see Jesus, just to, to see these things that, that Jesus is doing. And this doesn't sit well with the Pharisees because he's taking the people away from them. They don't like what he says, and they don't like the fact that he's drawing bigger crowds than they are. So they're angry, and they're jealous, and they hate Jesus. So that's where we find this passage. This is from Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now as this passage unfolds, I, I see Jesus and his disciples, they're walking together 
And try to get this into your mind. So, so there's the disciples, so there's the 12, kind of that inner group of 12 with Jesus. And they're, they're probably right there with Jesus. And then there's another larger group that's probably also considered his disciples. And then along with that, there's a, a huge group of people that are following Jesus. And they're all walking towards Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks this this incredibly important question. Who do people say that I am? The disciples' answer is is really, what it it is, is is kind of a sampling of the the human insight. That's what you have in verse, verse 28. Elijah and the prophets, John the Baptist. That's that's what people were thinking. And the reason the people do that is because they they know Jesus has to be a prophet because for two and a half years they have seen him demonstrate these incredible miracles. Only God, only deity can do the sorts of things that they saw Jesus do. He, He healed sicknesses of all kinds, diseases of all kinds. He, he feeds 5,000, and, and since they only counted the men, it was probably more like 25,000. I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. A lot of them probably heard, oh, did you, did you realize Jesus walked on water? He calmed the storm. He feeds another 4,000, which is probably 12,000. He removes demons. He restores eyesight. And then, you know, it's, it's, you know, he raises the dead. How would you like to be there? It's verifiable. It's not made up. It, you know, it, it, he rose that person from the dead. The other thing that's happening, so they've, they've seen all these miracles, but there's something else that's occurring all through this as well. And I don't want to trivialize that. We shouldn't think that this isn't important. But they have heard the most profound authoritative teaching ever. He doesn't teach like the Pharisees. He teaches with this incredible authority. And yet he also teaches with this great compassion. The unimaginable. So they know he's got he's to be somebody from God. There was no problem accepting Jesus as being from God. But the disciples and the people following him could not wrap their minds around him being the Messiah. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing and all this stuff. And he's got this incredible teaching. But he's not the Messiah. Or is he? The people coming to see Jesus and and the disciples, they struggled with him being the the Messiah. Why did they struggle about him being the Messiah? And the reason is that the people at that time, their their concept of the Messiah was, was warped. They struggled with Jesus being the Messiah because their concept of the Messiah would be that of a man who would be a political ruler completely uniting Israel. The Messiah would be a powerful military leader who would overthrow Rome, bringing freedom to Israel. 
He would be the anointed one from God. And in doing and being the anointed one, he would, he would bring a new order to Israel and there would be prosperity and peace. That's what they were looking for. This is what the Jewish people had, had been led to believe. This is what they wanted so much. Why the confusion? Because they didn't see Jesus doing any of those things. Jesus was not political. He mostly ignored the Romans. And, and if he did interact with the Romans, it was, it, it was like anyone else. He interacted with the soldiers on a whole different basis. He obviously was not portraying to them that he was the conquering king that they so much wanted. So they're struggling with this whole thing about who he is. Jesus asks the second question. It's really just like the first, only he makes it personal. And it was personal for those in the first century with Jesus. And it's personal for every, every person today. Who do you say that I am? He brings it right to us individually. This, this is the most important question to be asked. Because how a person answers this question determines a person's eternal destiny. Wrong answer, eternal judgment, hell. Correct answer, and you, re you receive eternal life with Jesus. Stark difference. Who do you say I am? So he's asked this question, and in a way he's asked it twice, and Peter, Peter becomes the spokesman. So Peter's a really incredible man. I can see the disciples, you know, Jesus has asked these questions and they kind of huddle together and they go, what should our answer be? I mean, you know, he's asking those questions. So what are we going to ask? And they kind of, you know, well, how many of you vote for this? And how many? They do this thing and they go, okay, Peter, here's the answer we want you to give to Christ. Okay, would you do that? Okay. And Peter goes, yeah, I'll do that. So as the spokesman for this group of people, Peter gives the answer. And it's the perfect, correct answer. You are the Christ. Simple. You are the Christ. Perfectly correct answer. Now, let me stop there because I want us to understand that word, Christ. We, we tend to use that as one of the names of Jesus. But that's not one of his names. It's not wrong that we do that, but let's understand what it is. Christ is from the Greek Christos, and it means anointed one. That's what it means. Christos is the Greek term that was used to translate the Hebrew Messiah. So when they're saying Christ, when Peter says, you are the Christ, in reality, what he's saying is, you are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. So what about the name thing? So Jesus is the name that was given by his earthly parents. You shall call his name Emmanuel. You shall call his name Jesus. So his earthly parents, you know, it's time for dinner, Jesus. 
he has another name we, we get from Scripture, the name above every name. After the resurrection, what's that name? Lord. He is Lord. That's his ultimate title. So Christ is not his name, but Christ, the anointed one, defines the work of Jesus. It defines that work as the promised king, prophet, priest, the Messiah. He's the one. So Peter makes this absolute perfect statement. You are the Christ. He knows as soon as he gives the answer that he has spoken correctly because of how Jesus responds. And I like the response in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 16, 17 and 18. <clears throat> and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying, you got it right, Peter. You may be representing your little group of 12, but you got it right. You know who I am. And by the way, when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, it isn't Peter. It's that statement, you are the Christ. What is the church built on? The fact that Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what the church is built on. And in this passage in, in Mark and in Matthew... Jesus is plainly teaching. He is truly the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So he gets it right, and that correct answer is, is followed by, a, in a way, a familiar warning in the, from Jesus. And the warning is, don't tell anybody. You got it right. You know exactly who I am. You, you know my true identity, but don't tell anybody. Have you ever wondered why? Wouldn't, wouldn't you think, Jesus, just go out there and tell everybody, because that's what he expects of us. But he doesn't do that. Why, why would Jesus tell him to keep his real identity a secret? And the, the, the reason is actually simple and it's also important. It was not the correct time. We can go out and we can, we can say everything we can about Christ's real identity. Because it's time. The disciples couldn't do that at this time because it wasn't time. Everything had to occur at the precise time in God's plan. God has always had a plan. It's a perfect plan. It has a process it wasn't time. It wasn't that place in the plan. Why do I say that? Because Jesus had, not, had, to, he had to finish the work. He had to go to the cross. He had to die. He has to be buried. And he then had to raise from the dead. That was the plan. God's plan had to be finished. Now, now, Jesus continued to exhibit such marvelous miracles and, and teach with great authority. But all of those things, all the miracles, all the fabulous teaching, 
That's not why Jesus came. He came to die. That was God's plan. He came to die as the perfect sacrifice for human sin. He came and he lived an absolute perfect life. So that he could then die perfectly. He had to become the perfect sacrifice for sin. So he's saying, you got it right. I'm here. I'm the Messiah. But don't tell anyone. Because the plan has to finish. Now let's go on. Because there's more to this reasoning from Jesus. Verse 31 And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is fascinating. It's fascinating and it's also crazy, but... This whole thing that Jesus is teaching is messing with the disciples' thinking. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You you just told us that we had the right answer. You're the Messiah. But they don't want to accept the plan. They're struggling with the plan. He's the Messiah. But he just told them very plainly. That's what it says. Plainly, he's going to be murdered. You're the Messiah. Oh, by the way, guys, I'm the Messiah, and they're going to murder me. Oh, my goodness. They they didn't want to accept the plan. How incredibly difficult for them to understand. On the one hand, you've got this, what are you talking about? This is incredibly bad news. You're going to be killed? And yet, at the same time, that's the absolute best possible news. News. The greatest of all evil events was the crucifixion of Jesus. Why do I say that? He was absolutely, in every way conceivable, perfect. He was a perfect human being. He was falsely accused, and they hung him on the cross. They killed him. That is an incredible statement of evil. And at exactly the same time that level of evil was taking place, the most amazing Greatest event of good is happening at exactly the same time. Only God can do something like that. Incredible evil, incredible good, packed together. So here we have these these men that have been following Jesus for two and a half years, and they know now he's the Messiah, their king. And because of that, they know, they know on the one hand, they, they know he's not going to lie to them. Jesus is not going to lie to them. I think they, they really understood he doesn't lie. So how they sort this out that he's going to die? They couldn't sort it out. They're having a hard time figuring this out, even though they were probably uh, exposed to so many of the scripture Scriptures that told about what was going to happen to the Messiah. Like Isaiah 53.5. There's so many of them, but here's one I chose for today. Isaiah 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. They would have heard that. It was a, that's, that's a prophecy from Isaiah about the Messiah. Crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced. If they had remembered much of any of their Judaism, the Old Testament, they would have known that what Jesus is saying was true. He had to come and die. They didn't grasp it. And we are absolutely certain from Scripture that Peter didn't get it. Ah, Peter. Peter didn't grasp the glorious plan. We know that because how does Peter respond? Verse 32, it says, Peter took him aside. First of all, through this whole little section of Scripture, what was Peter thinking? And, and here's why you can go even deeper in there. What was Peter thinking? Because the language that is used in this context, you put that all together in the Greek, and it gives us the idea of Peter grabbing a hold of Jesus and pulling him close and then beginning to rebuke him. So, so sometimes we have this, oh, Jesus, you shouldn't say that kind of approach. That's, that's not what the Greek says. It says he went over and he grabs a hold of Jesus and pulls him over here and says, I'm going to rebuke you. Peter, Peter grabs the Messiah. Yikes. He grabs the Son of God and he pulls him close and then he begins to rebuke him. Oh, man. And rebuke here, the Greek word here is, is strong. It's a strong word. So we could say he, he grabs a hold of the Messiah and then he goes off on him. Dumps on him. And some of that imagery is even better in Matthew where it says, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's just a little bit out of control here. Peter's, Peter's, Peter grabs a hold of the Son of God, the Messiah, and he says, this isn't going to happen. And we're not going to allow this. Not on our watch. You aren't dying on our watch. What in the world is Peter doing? You just, just moments earlier, you proclaimed him as the Messiah. He's God, and you grab a hold of him, and begin, you begin to tell him a thing or two? Let me know how that works out for you. Peter rebukes Jesus because he doesn't understand the plan. He doesn't understand the plan. One of, the, one of the reasons some of this was missed was because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. So we have to maybe cut him a little bit of slack. Not much. The plan was for Jesus to die. That was God's plan. Peter's saying, I want the Pete plan. I want Peter's plan. I want my plan, not the creator of the universe's plan. I want Pete's plan. Peter didn't want the cross. He wanted his version of human power and glory. That's where Peter was at. Of 
course, Jesus is compassionate and doesn't vaporize Peter. He has an interesting response because Peter has grabbed a hold of Jesus and he tugs him over here and he starts to rebuke him. All the other disciples are over here going, oh, oh no, <laughs> we're going to lose Peter. <laughs> what is he doing? And I can just see Jesus, he's, he's been pulled aside by Peter and he kind of looks over here and he looks at his other disciples and he goes, hmm, teaching moment. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he sees the other disciples. They're, they're in utter disbelief. They, just, Peter? Then Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, literally in the Greek, what this means is get out of my sight, Satan. That's really what Jesus is saying. Get behind me. So, so you put somebody behind me, they're out of sight, right? So what Jesus is saying is, get out of my sight. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, it never works out well for people to play God. When you put yourself in the place of God, you end up putting yourself in the place of Satan. Jesus says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The version in Matthew, the, the phrasing there in, in Matthew 16, 23, Jesus says, you are a stumbling block. And stumbling block in the Greek, scandalon. And it means you are a baited trap. If you're going to keep me from the cross, Peter, you're on Satan's side. Get out of my sight. The problem is that Peter was stuck on the present. He, he only sees the right now. He's stuck in the present, and he's also failing to grasp what the past prophets have said, and he's, he's missing what's in the future, the glories that are going to come because of the resurrection. So here you have Peter. You are the Christ. Correct response. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, my goodness. Peter must have just been crushed. And rather confused. What is going on? Because we have, we have in this story, we have the good news. Jesus is the Messiah. He's proclaiming it plainly. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. We have the bad news. He's going to die. He's going to be murdered. But we have more good news. He's going to rise. That's the good news. So you have the bad and the good, and it's all mixing together. And Jesus takes this whole teaching on because he wants people to understand the truth of what this all means. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him. So, so first of all, we've, we've seen Jesus kind of interacting with the 12 and interacting a lot with Peter. 
And then he says, okay, all the rest of you, come on, come on down. Come up here close. Because I got something for all of you. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's huge. The phrase, come after me, that's, that's a phrase for unbelievers. It was for unbelievers then and it's for unbelievers now. This is an open invitation to place their faith in him and join his disciples. Jesus wants us to go out and present the gospel so that people will do this same thing. Come, follow Jesus. Come after me. He makes it clear as well to make that choice to follow him would cost everything. Saving faith is characterized by self-denial, cross-bearing, and submissive obedience. Cross-bearing. You know, we could take a poll. How many of you are wearing a cross? You know, I've, I've got one on my tie. You know, we just we just cherish that. We've got them up on wood in here, you know. It's our, we decorate our houses with that. When Jesus spoke those words, take up his cross, the cross was capital punishment of the worst sort. We could say, take up your gas chamber. You know, how many of you decorate your walls with a gas chamber, you know? That was the reality. Take up your cross. You know, go die for me. If you're going to follow me, go die for me. And in that passage, let him deny himself. Deny is a very strong term, meaning to have no association with or to disown completely. What are we to have no association with? What are we to disown completely? Self. Deny himself. Have nothing to do with yourself. Your own stuff. Wow. Pursuing Christ requires embracing him as Savior and wholeheartedly submitting to him as Lord. At the moment of salvation, former slaves of sin are transformed into slaves of righteousness. You'll find that in Romans 6, 17 and 18. Those former slaves of sin become slaves of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 1 Peter 2, 16. There's something that occurs. There's a transformation. And it's ongoing. Now... Jesus is talking about martyrdom. He's talking about suffering. Not every believer will die as a martyr. We know that. I mean, we really, in this country, we have it pretty easy. We have it really easy. How would you like to be a believer in the Ukraine right now? What we do know from history and from the word is that every faithful follower of Jesus will love Christ so fully, so completely that even death 
is not too high a price for the eternal joy that we have waiting for us. Nothing that happens in this life can compare in value to what God has in store for us. It's secure for us. It's there for us. It can't be taken away. We have so much waiting for us. You preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and somebody says, I'm going to kill you for that. Bring it on. I just get to go home and be with Jesus. Now we, we know that in many ways, all believers suffer to some degrees because the world hates those who belong to Him. Why does the world hate believers? And in our society, the world hates believers because we deal in some absolutes. They don't like absolutes. Like, it's absolutely true that if you die without Christ, you go to hell. If you accept Christ, you go to heaven. It's an absolute Our society doesn't like that. We deal with some absolutes about morality. The world around us doesn't like that. So we know that for for all believers, to some degree, we're hated by the world. This metaphor of taking up the cross is for being willing to pay any price for the glorious gift of life that Jesus gives. True true conversion causes a person to view Jesus and the hope of heaven as so precious that no personal sacrifice is too much. No personal sacrifice is too much. So I wonder, I wonder if any of us be willing to take the challenge to preach Jesus so directly and so often and with so much conviction that you go out from here and you go into the world and you just start sharing about Jesus and you're going to share Jesus till somebody says, I can't stand it. I'm going to kill you if you mention Jesus one more time. Anybody take it with that? There's people in the world who do that. What are we willing to give? What are we willing to do for the Messiah? Now, in this, this passage, Jesus also says, follow me. Follow me. This is discipleship. This is where the believer becomes a disciple. And discipleship requires loyal and continual obedience to Jesus. Jesus explains the nature of discipleship as he goes on by using a paradox, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. People who are unwilling to surrender their lives to Christ and choose instead to cling to sin, selfish ambition, and that desire to be accepted by the world, they will lose their souls to everlasting death. They will go to hell. People who are willing to abandon everything for the sake of Christ will receive eternal life. There's a stark difference there. Now, when Jesus and the Word, when, when, when He's talking about suffering, 
He's not saying every form of self-sacrifice has spiritual or eternal value. Y'all can make some choices and suffer. And just because you make a choice and you suffer doesn't mean that that's a spiritual reality. Oh, I'm getting more in heaven because I'm suffering. Well, maybe you're suffering because you didn't pay your taxes. You didn't pay your rent. You didn't pay your mortgage. Well, you're going to suffer. But that's, that's not the point Jesus is making. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Sacrifice for the Spirit of God, for the gospel of God, for Jesus, for the kingdom. That's what makes the difference for his sake. What are you willing to do for the sake of the gospel? So Jesus continues and he has two rhetorical questions to help us. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus, the word, repeatedly teaches that obtaining all the riches, riches. You know, I was reading about somebody who, you know, he made $3 billion. What would you do with $3 billion? That's with a B, billion that much money, right? So you obtain all the riches. You've got it all. And not only that, you, you get the recognition. You get position. You're recognized in this life. You're the top guy or gal. And yet you die without Christ. You're penniless. You are destitute for eternity. Not just destitute in this life, but destitute for eternity. Everything in this world, position, money, everything will burn. It's going to be consumed with fire. It's going to cease to exist. Human sinfulness seeks the things of this world, not the things of heaven. We struggle with this in our sinfulness. The things of this world are different. They get us nowhere. But that's where our sinfulness wants to take us. Those who trust the work of Jesus seek eternal things. The eternal kingdom of God. Wow. I want the things of God. I want the things of heaven. I want to be with Jesus. I want his stuff. Not mine. Not the world's. Why would you choose something that's going to rot and burn for all of eternity over something that's going to be precious and indestructible? Easy choice. Jesus continues. Verse 38. (coughs) Excuse me. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a powerful, powerful paragraph. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. 
The plan for Jesus was for him to take on human form, to suffer and die as the perfect sacrifice for human sin. That was the plan. It's also God's plan for Jesus to return. He's going to return as that triumphant king. He's coming as the king, and he's coming as the divine judge. He's going to judge, and he's going to rule. It's going to happen. That's an absolute fact. It's an absolute fact that if you choose the things of this world, you go to hell. If you choose Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. It's an absolute fact that he's coming back, and he's got great things for those that are his. Jesus will determine every person's eternal destiny. Who do you say I am? Those who are ashamed of him and his work, he'll reject because they've rejected him. In this passage, the word ashamed, it means to despise or reject. Despise or reject. The the only people who are going to receive eternal life are ashamed as well. But what are they ashamed of? Those that love Jesus are ashamed of their personal sin. I don't want anything to do with my sinfulness. I recognize that I'm a black-hearted, wretched sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm ashamed of that. But I will never, ever be ashamed of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah. Some of the lessons in this passage are amazing. And and one of the big ones is that it's easy. It's so easy because we get so comfortable. It's easy for us to love Jesus. But reject or ignore God's method of operation, his plan. I love Jesus. I just don't want to do that discipleship stuff. I love Jesus. I just, I just don't want to tell anybody about him. In many ways, we're like Peter. When we come to God and we say, God, you know everything. And, and, and God, you... There there is no limit to your power. And you are perfect in your holiness and and your wisdom, and I love you. However, let me tell you my plan. I have some things I want to tell you because there's some things I want you to do. I think you need to do these things, Jesus. And if we approach God that way, we're just like Peter. Peter. And we become scandalon, a baited trap. We become a hindrance to God's plan. Where this should take us is that each one of us needs to diligently work at replacing our human, worldly view, our worldview that's based on the things of this world, and replace that worldview with a heavenly, biblical Worldview. What is your biblical worldview? And the, the way we do that, the way we acquire a biblical worldview is to be continually immersed in Scripture. You've got to be in the Word. There's really three, there's three components to 
acquiring, maintaining, and advancing in your biblical worldview. One of them is the Word. Another one is prayer. And the third one is in fellowship. Fellowship with like-minded people who are also pursuing a biblical worldview. We need to choose. We, we must choose to grow in our knowledge of Christ. I want to know more about who Jesus is and was. Grow in our knowledge of Christ. And then live in that knowledge, even if it brings suffering. There are some in the history of the church who have expected the Christian life to be filled with prosperity and no tribulation or suffering. And they preach that. If you're a believer, you should have everything that you want. You should have all the money you need. And if you're really a good Christian, then you're not going to suffer and there won't be any tribulation in your life. Lies after lies. We are taught very clearly in Scripture that we cannot expect prosperity and the lack of suffering in this life. Paul clearly teaches this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. You want to live for Christ? Expect there to be hard times. And who cares? Who cares about the hard times here? Don't forget about what's common. Don't forget about what Jesus has done. Nothing of hardship, persecution, tribulation, or suffering in this life can even come close to comparing to what believers have securely waiting for us in the future. It's secure. What you have in the future cannot be taken away from you. It is permanently yours if you're a believer. Nothing here compares. Nothing. There were many places I could go to help us look forward and look to the future. Most of those places I went were in Revelation. I chose this one because it speaks some of what Christ is teaching in this passage from Mark. And as John was, was given the revelation, he, he gets these glimpses of the glory and triumph of Christ. So this is the one that I chose to end with today. This is from Revelation 5, verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's our King. Father, I ask that you would fill us with the reality of who Jesus is.
Holy Spirit, stir us up in such a way that we want to just do so much to lift Jesus up, even if it costs us our life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have made it possible for us to eternally be in the presence of the creator of the universe. Thank you that you are the lamb slain for us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd take us from this place and that you'd give us the heart's desire to tell everybody about Jesus. That we would declare by our lifestyle and our actions that we agree with Peter, you are the Christ. It's settled. We know you are the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you. We give ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.